Hello, I'm meteorologist Frank Strait. Coming up, we'll look back at our highlights from the 2019 Carolina Weather Group Highlight Special, but first, this quick forecast overview for the Carolinas for the next few days. As we begin looking at uh, Wednesday evening satellite pictures, uh, sun starting to uh, set, and uh, we're seeing uh, clouds associated with the usual summertime thunderstorms over the western part of North Carolina and a good bit of South Carolina, stray storms in eastern North Carolina. Those are fading away this evening, but still some of you are seeing downpours and uh, hearing some rumbles of thunder as they fade away this evening. A couple of other features to keep an eye on. Off to the north, there's once again a cold front trying to push farther south. Weather pattern sort of repeating itself here, but this time this front will be stalling off to our north. It won't be bringing us any relief from heat and humidity here. However, we have some features to the west to keep an eye on that uh, could bring a reduction in the heat over the next couple of days. One's over the mid-Mississippi Valley, another's moving into Iowa and Missouri from the Plain States. These two features will come together as one and uh, have some impact on our weather. Another cluster of storms up over Minnesota will be staying off to our north. Let's look at the upper air charts now and the forecast. As we begin, uh, the main jet streams way to our north, up over Canada. In fact, up a ridge, a northward buckling of the jet stream uh, over uh, Ontario right now, and uh, the main jets over the uh, Canadian border across the western part of the North America. But our two uh, features uh, by Thursday evening starting to come together here over the mid-Mississippi and Tennessee valleys. And if I advance this a couple more days, that uh, process is complete. We have a weak upper trough resulting. And as that uh, pushes into and uh, through the Carolinas at the end of the week and uh, through Saturday and then lifts out on Sunday, we'll see the weather get more active, more in the way of showers and thunderstorms, and it holds temperatures down. Then Sunday, we start to heat up again as that trough lifts out. The first part of next week uh, looks uh, seasonable in terms of temperatures and uh, only stray afternoon showers and thunderstorms as a result. Uh, and, but then by the middle of next week, we again see another unusually strong upper trough over the eastern part of the country, which results in the weather getting more active again for the Carolinas and heat levels dropping once again. You might even see some drier air push in to the western Carolinas later next week as the front becomes stationary over the eastern Carolinas. Now we'll look at the surface pattern and see where the rubber meets the road here. Uh, by your Thursday evening, the uh, front to the north has become stationary over the Delmarva Peninsula, Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Our upper trough that's developing over the mid-Mississippi Valley is causing some showers and thunderstorms. Maybe a little influence from that uh, over into western North Carolina with uh, fairly widespread showers and storms. Elsewhere, just a stray storm and seasonable summertime heat. Uh, mostly high 80s in North Carolina, mostly no low 90s in South Carolina. Advancing forward into Friday, things get more active over the western and central Carolinas. That upper trough moves in from the west. So look for your temperatures to be held down somewhat and it to be a pretty steamy day with showers around even before midday in some areas. Back to the mountains, most areas stay in the 70s. Outside of that area, though, uh, we'll see, again, typical summertime heat, 80s to around 90 for eastern North Carolina and most South Carolina. Then Saturday looks to be the most active day, especially for North Carolina, as uh, that trupper trough is moving through, generating showers and storms and a lot of clouds, holding temperatures down no higher than likely the mid-80s in North Carolina. And again, maybe 70s in the mountains, a little hotter in South Carolina, and some spots can touch 90 in the low country. Going ahead to Sunday, heat starts trending upward as the storm coverage trends downward. It looks as though we stay uh, seasonably hot and uh, mostly rain-free for your Monday, which is 
Uh, storms mainly confined to the mountains in the afternoon. Uh, Tuesday into Wednesday gets more active as that next uh, upper trough develops over the eastern part of the country. And again, even a front getting pretty far to the south. And uh, by Wednesday into Thursday, there's a chance that uh, some drier air could push into the western part of the Carolinas and, and give a brief nice spell there while it uh, stays active farther east. Need to look briefly at the tropics because we have one system to watch out there. Tropical Depression 11, which formed uh, Tuesday. It's uh, still weak because dry air intrusion and uh, wind shear has been holding it in check. The wind shear should relax as it drifts to the west-northwest in the coming days through the rest of the week, but it could get a little stronger, not much stronger because the dry air remains an inhibiting factor. And then over the weekend, it moves into this area here north of the Lesser Antilles. By that point, strong southwesterly upper-level winds will potentially shear this thing apart. But if it were to survive into early next week, then we'll have to keep an eye on it as uh, it could uh, get fairly close to the east coast. Right now, we're thinking uh, the Hurricane Center forecast is calling for, again, some intensification, but not to a hurricane. Some chance it gets to a Category 1 hurricane by Friday, but most likely stays a tropical storm. Then weakening as it hits the shear over the weekend, and if it's still around Monday, most likely it ends up going closer to Bermuda than the east coast, but there's a chance it gets further west, so we'll have to keep an eye on it. That's your forecast, and now back a look at some of the interviews we conducted in May 2019 when the National Hurricane Center visited the Charlotte Douglas International Airport as part of their hurricane tour. To see the entire hour-long special, click on the link in the description. We start with Scotty's interview with NHC Director Ken Graham. We are headed to um, Charlotte, North Carolina today to take part in the uh, Hurricane uh, Awareness Tour, Evan. Yep. Hurricane Hunter is going to be there along with several meteorologists um, from the National Hurricane Center. All right, we're here at the Hurricane Awareness Tour, and we're with National Hurricane Center Director Ken Graham. Uh, last year, North Carolina experienced Alberto. Uh, we had Florence, even some touches of Michael with heavy rain. So uh, as you guys just finished your review of those events, tell us about some of the maybe the uh, crazy stats that you saw come out of Florence uh, with the heavy rain threat. Yeah, the, it's interesting when you look at it because the actual track forecast was, was pretty much right on track. We did a great job with the track. And the, the intensity forecast is still tough. I mean, we were underdoing it at the beginning, and then we overshot the intensity forecast towards the end. So we still struggle with this whole intensity problem. But here's the deal. Despite the intensity, the impacts were the same. Even with the winds coming down, the impacts didn't change at all. Storm surge. Think about this. 100 miles inland, we have the highest values of the storm surge. I mean, that's something that we talk about. It's not just a coastal threat. It's inland. And that was predicted four days ahead of time. The rainfall forecast, almost perfect five days ahead of time. So what's happening here? We, we got good forecasts but we still have people in the water. So I think there's this other component that we have to talk about it, and it's, it's behavioral and social science, getting that information into the forecast as well, and so we can communicate the best we can to get a good response. Not only did it bring along the rain, but it also brought gusty winds. In fact, there was a lot of wind in lots of places that don't experience hurricane winds. We caught up with Eric Thomas earlier this summer at the National Hurricane Awareness Tour. Eric reflects back on what he remembers as Hugo was bearing down on Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, I got here in the fall of 88, and in November of 88, they had that F4 tornado up in Raleigh. And next thing I know, I'd barely got my feet on the ground, and I'm in a helicopter flying over this tornado damage and thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> so I got through that, and then 89 rolled around, and here comes Hurricane Hugo. And I have to tell you, we were woefully under-equipped uh, back then in the weather department. We, we actually, when I got here, I was the first meteorologist to ever work at WBTV. 
So at the same time that I got there, they were feverishly trying to bring in the weather equipment that would allow me to really do my job as a meteorologist. So at that point, we really didn't have any real analytical equipment. So I was a slave to just this little sheet of uh, one page of, of weather surface weather maps from AccuWeather to kind of like look at this and go, oh, gee, there's a cold front, there's a warm <laughs> front, and that looks like a hurricane. You know, and so, I mean, we had the little 300 baud weather ticker back then, you know, tick, 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 you know, bringing up the data. And so, uh, but to, to their credit, you know, AccuWeather, as this storm was getting closer, you know, was, was letting us know, look, this thing has got a very fast forward speed. It was like coming into the coast at around 35, 40 miles per hour. And the problem with that is you've got a Category 4 hurricane down there, and this thing is going to be up in Charlotte, you know, within four, five, six hours. That, that's not much time for a Cat 4 to spin down, is it? Right. And so we were warning people, look, this is going to be different than most of the coastal hurricanes in the past. And we were feverishly trying to tell people to tie everything down, get ready, this is not going to be good. Even with that, though, we had no idea uh, that it was going to create the amount of destruction that it did. Uh, I remember when the first light came up, and I was there all night, and we looked out the windows out of the radio station that we have there, and my jaw just dropped because it seemed like there must have been 95, 100 pine trees that were just mowed down. It looked like Godzilla had come through. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, uh, and then, of course, the rest is history. You know, we've always heard about how people were without power for three weeks. You hear the sounds of chainsaws buzzing in the air, you know, week after week. I remember when I was trying to get home that day, and it took me a long time to get home because of all the blocked roads, that, you know, the very first intersection that I came to, right at the bottom of our hill, uh, there was a National Guardsman there with his M16 machine gun, you know, in the intersection. And, and that's when it really hit me. I thought, you know, it feels like I am in a war zone yeah. here. Uh, and that's what it was, you know, with just the complete destruction of the infrastructure around Charlotte uh, and, and all the trees down the roads blocked, stores closed, nobody could get gas, you know. And it was just really um, intimidating, you know, to be, you know, to be a part of that as a citizen. Um, and, and then after that, of course, you know, all the, uh, the cleanup and the recovery began. Very unique story from Eric Thomas. We also caught up with Larry Sprinkle at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport for the hurricane awareness story. And Larry tells us about what it was like covering Hugo while on the air broadcasting to the many folks watching as Hugo bared down on Western North Carolina. And obviously, you know, this is going to my 35th year I've seen and covered quite a few, but that one specifically impacted me directly because um, the morning that that actually hit Charlotte, um, at the station we had a limited staff. We had two of us in the weather department, Steve Raleigh and myself, and just a nucleus of people to run the station. So there were, oh, maybe 12 people at the most in the station. So they decided to uh, lock a camera down in the studio so the meteorologist is on, the, on air with a lockdown camera. Steve was taking a break, and I think it was maybe 4.20ish in the morning. Uh, we'd been outside, inside, we knew that the, that the run of the storm was hitting, and I'll never forget the camera was, was like here in front of me, and off to my left is the main part of the studio. And so I'm talking, and I'm saying, uh, we've, had, uh, we've had reports of wind gusts over 90 miles an hour, Near Shaw Air Force Base, 
winds over 70 miles an hour in Charlotte, and about that time I could hear something off to my left, kind of a creaking sound, and then all of a sudden I looked over and about 500 pounds of ceiling came in right next to me. So now the camera didn't pick it up, but, I, but I'm like this. The camera is here, but my eyes are like this. And part of the ceiling just caved in in front of me. We've received gust up to um, uh, about 100 miles an hour Shaw Air Force Base. I've been distracted because, uh, as a lot of people are experiencing, part of our ceiling just collapsed in here. This is a very serious system. Back to you guys in the newsroom. So it went back to our news anchor uh, uh, at the time, Rick Jackson. And so Rick goes, uh, his camera's back on him. He goes, Larry, let me ask you a question. <laughs> Larry? Larry was on his hands and knees crawling. <laughs> Took me two seconds to get out of the studio. But yeah, what happened was we had a big tower next to the building, a 1,200-foot tower. And the guy wires that came down one snap, and about 1,000 pounds of it hit the roof. And so that pushed the ceiling into the studio. So I thought I was going to be the first weather guy to go in the act. But luckily I got that. But yeah, that, that's, you know, you can't forget that. Absolutely, and obviously um, that hurricane was intense, but not just on the shore, but also inland, inland places yeah. like Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, for our viewers that don't know, why exactly it was that those strong winds made it so far into the land? I mean, I think that atmospherically you had everything in place it took. You had obviously a hurricane, uh, category four hurricane off the coast of Charleston. You had a big area of high pressure off the coast of New England, area of low pressure in the Gulf of Mexico. Those steered that storm Right, right across Charleston, right into the Midlands of South Carolina, making that turn more to the north, right over Charlotte, then right over Hickory, and then just on a beeline uh, up the Ohio Valley. I mean, it was atmospherically things that you just don't see that often. So that was a very unique story from Larry Sprinkle, and one that I can only imagine covering Hugo as you have partial uh, roof collapse of the studio. That just very unique story. James, uh, you live in Charlotte, uh, the city of trees, and I'm sure the devastation was real. Yeah, you know, and I, I wasn't living here at the time, Scotty, but that's my understanding of it, having listening to Eric, talking to Larry, not only at the airport, but at work each day, just talking about the impact that this storm had uh, and the cleanup that followed. I'm still um, thinking about that image you had earlier in the show, Scotty, about the WSOC TV tower that just looked like it was bent over um, by a monst monster force. Um, and I think that's uh, evident of the impact that this storm had on not only metal, but trees um, across the whole region. So this is the mighty P-3 Orion. It's a uh, uniquely instrumented aircraft for hurricane research and reconnaissance. It's a uh, Navy, well, it comes from the Navy P-3, right. which we have uh, taken from the, from the manufacturer and uniquely instrumented for the research that we do. Uh, some of the unique features of our plane are our uh, lower fuselage radar, which is a uh, multi-mode radar that can actually lower in flight and scan 360 degrees around the plane as we're flying along. And that data can then go directly to the National Hurricane Center for use in their research models. In addition to that, on the tail, we have the tail Doppler radar, which is a unique radar that actually scans vertically 360 degrees and takes a slice of the storm as we're flying through both before and after the plane. So by taking two scans, it actually allows us to do a three-dimensional view 
of that storm as we're flying through it and measure those updrafts and downdrafts of the storm and measure those dynamics, which goes towards predicting the, uh, the strengthening or weakening of that storm. That's awesome. Man. How many of these do you guys have in your fleet? Uh, we have two P3s. This one's uh, Kermit the Frog, and uh, his partner, Miss Piggy, is at home getting ready for the hurricane season. So this radar underneath our plane is our multi-mode radar. And that actually can lower in-flight. That whole radar dish lowers below the plane to clear it from any interference of the plane and can scan 360 degrees around as we fly. So it's just like the uh, the radar that you might have on your phone or that you might get from the National Weather Service. And it's a uh, X-band radar, which is a highly detailed radar for close-range um, measurements. So with that, we've actually just incorporated that into the plane within the last couple of years. And as we're flying into these storms, what we're seeing is that additional detail that's provided by that new radar is allowing us to see never-before-seen mesovortices within that eye wall that help explain why certain areas of that storm are more violent than others. What's one that really stands out to you? Well, your first mission is always special. So my first mission was Hurricane Cristobal back in 2014. And uh, that one was unique in that it was a small tropical storm that increased to a hurricane. It didn't really impact the United States, but for whatever reason, that storm had more lightning than I've ever seen in my life. So flying through that storm, it was like going through a disco ball with all that lightning going on. The other uh, more unique one that really impacted us was Hurricane Irma. Uh, so we flew that storm as it went north of Cuba and uh, went through the Caribbean. And as it was starting to threaten our home in Lakeland, Florida, that one was a strong, beautiful Category 5 storm, but we were flying it straight to our own home. So we were our forecast was dictating how that, that prediction was turning either the west coast or east coast of Florida and uh, how it was going to impact our home. So we fly the mission, then go home and prepare ourselves. And you bring up a good point. And, uh, you know, walk us through what it's like in the, in the day of a NOAA pilot, you know, you know, from the time that there's a storm recognition to, hey, we may need to deploy on this, on this storm and, and to the actual launch. Absolutely. So the National Hurricane Center is constantly monitoring the, uh, the pressure systems as they go across the Atlantic. And when they identify something that has the potential for development, they'll start tasking us through CARCA, which is one of their uh, partner organizations with the Air Force. So they'll dictate who gets to go where and uh, launch us out into the storm. Oftentimes, we'll pre-deploy out to Barbados or St. Croix in order to get further out into that the Atlantic and catch those storms even earlier. Once we do that, we'll typically try to do 24-hour operations, which for one plane, if we have that out there, uh, we'll do two crews and launch typically once every 12 hours. Our typical mission flight is about eight to 10 hours long. So we'll fly out for eight to 10 hours, land, refuel the plane, get a new crew going and do it right right again. One last question here, uh, you know, once you break into that eye wall and you, you know, you penetrate and you get in there and you see that stadium effect, you know, personally, what is it like for you to see that? I tell you what, it's it's quite the contradiction in that it, that stadium effect really only happens in the most severe Category 5 storms. Some of those Category 2, 3, 4 storms, they still have a lot of thunderstorms in the middle. So even as you break through into the eye wall, you may still have to be ducking and diving some of that uh, internal convection. But those that uh, Category 5 stadium effect is, is pretty awesome. You don't get to see that uh, any other time. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank yes, you. Yes, sir. Major Dunn, and uh, you're with the 53rd? Yeah, the pilot on the 53rd, on uh, the WC-130. Okay, and uh, how long have you been a pilot? Uh, been a pilot since um, the early 2000s, flew Blackhawks in the Army first. Right. And then uh, made the switch to WC-130s about uh, seven years ago. Uh, what, what made you want to switch from rotor wing to fixed wing? Well, the Army is a good place for a while, but that's a young man's game. Right. I was hoping to fly C-130s. Um, the Hurricane Hunters were right down the street. They had an opportunity, so I took it. So. Uh, has been never looked back.
Now, when you guys, uh, you know, get ready, you know, mission ready, once tropical season comes around, uh, how, how does your schedule work as far as, you know, from the time that you guys may have to go recon, recon a storm to, to actual launch time? Yeah, great question. We have, uh, we have an agreement with the National Hurricane Center. We have a 16-hour response time. Um, so basically, you're sitting around the uh, plan of the day, the pod is what they call it, comes in and says, hey, we definitely want y'all to go fly. So depending on where the storm is, we're taking off and going to fly it that very next day and we'll fly it till the storm dies out. If it's in Hawaii, that obviously takes a couple of more uh, days to get there. So they'll usually give us a couple of days response time. We definitely want you to get out there and we'll load three airplanes, crews and people and go. Um, but it happens pretty quick. Um, if you've never seen it, you know, uh, new people that'll come in, it looks like mass chaos and doesn't look very organized, but uh, it, it seems to work. It's just right. how it is. Now, uh, your average miss missions that you fly, I know that's going to be really dependent on where the, where the storm is, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, you go out to the Caribbean or something, walk, walk, what's, you know, walk us through one of those missions. I mean, yeah, time so, um, so a mission, the average mission is about nine to ten hours, um, depending on how far it is away. So we'll just use flying, and let's use Hurricane Florence that came through last year. Uh, we, forward, we moved to Savannah with three aircraft crews, and we were hitting the storm when it was about six hours away. So basically five and a half hours to get there, a couple hours, and then fly back. So those missions were long, 12, 13 hours. So as it moves in, uh, you can stay in a storm environment longer. Hurricane Florence, when it was hitting the coast, I, was, I flew it for about seven hours on my last flight. As it was making landfall, uh, they were concerned about how strong the wind was on the backside, so we continued to fly it all the way. Right, now now for Florence, were you guys uh, launching from Bermuda or Savannah? Uh, Florence. I love it. Yeah. So for Hurricane Florence, we moved to Savannah, so we started flying immediately off of Savannah. We just, we do. They basically, as soon as we flew it the first time, they made a projection. I think within 10 miles, they knew where it was going to hit. Wow. It's pretty, pretty accurate. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, now tell you know for the, some of the viewers that don't don't really know a whole lot about airplanes about about your aircraft here. Yeah. So this is a WC-130J C-130 coming off the assembly line. We add a few things to it, um, little pieces of equipment that make it a W. Uh, it's a big tank. The J variant is an upgrade. If you can see the the props, these props, uh, six-bladed props. If you look at the NOAA plane later, it still has the four like boat paddle props. Um, upgraded engines, 4,700 horsepower per engine, uh, a lot of thrust. We can take off 165,000 pounds. If uh, war was going on, the president could wave it to 175,000. So a lot of weight can come off of this aircraft. We normally fly around uh, topped off on gas, close to 60,000 pounds, which give us a max loitering time and a little uh, little slop on each side. So right. we have to be super precise on our Now, now does the Hercules have air-to-air uh, air -air refuel capability? Uh, no, thank God it doesn't, because uh, if our aircraft did, they want us to air-to-air -air refuel and we would never land. I understand yeah. that. Uh, as far as some of the weather weather uh, the weather the systems that you may have on board, Yeah, scary. so the biggest thing for us, um, other than the meteorologists, you know, them being the weather <laughs> weapon, I'm gonna start calling them a weather weapon, but uh, you know, those guys themselves interpreting the weather and sending it back to the National Hurricane Center. We use a drop sign, uh, basically a sign falls from the bottom of the aircraft, about 2,500 feet a minute. Um, and as it's falling, it's getting temperature, uh, dew point, wind speeds, big thing, pressure's the real big thing. Uh, and as it falls, it goes all the way to surface and it's sending information back. That's our, uh, that's our go-to ticket. We have a couple of other instruments, uh, the Smurf, I can lie to you, it's the Smurf, it's the uh, Step Meteor, yeah. It has, a, it has a long acronym, it was built in uh, Massachusetts by some really smart guys. But it's actually looking at waves and as they crash and it's measuring temperature and gives us a wind speed. Really, really upper level right. cerebral stuff. Right. That's, uh, that's really cool. Um
That does it for this update from the Carolina Weather Group. I'm James Briarton in Charlotte. We'll see you back here real soon for more from the Carolina Weather Group.